Here in Mark chapter two, we have uh, one of my favorite Bible stories since I was a little kid. I always loved this one. And uh, there's so much we can glean from this. It's Mark chapter two, verses one through 12. Let's take a look. Mark two, verse one. And again, he, Jesus, entered into Capernaum. After some days, it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway, many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh to him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your hearts? Where, uh, whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose and took up the bed and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw it on this fashion. What a story. We have here in this story several perspectives from different people's vantage point in the story. And I think it'd be worth it for us to maybe take a look at these different perspectives because depending on who you are, you might have a perspective that you can learn from different people here. And so let's break it down. I really have two big objectives today. First, I wanna show you the seven perspectives of each person in the story or group of people. Um, but then also I wanna show you at the end kind of a quick rundown of a good model for the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, not just Athey Creek, but the church capital C. Um, what, what does a healthy church look like? I think this story actually shows us some, some pretty cool um, clues of what a healthy church looks like. But first, the seven perspectives. And the first one we're gonna take a look at from the perspective of the man on the mat. The man that has the, what's called, the Bible calls it the palsy. What is it? What, what disease does this poor man have? Well, the answer, we don't really know for sure. When we hear the word palsy, you might think, well, does he have cerebral palsy? Or like, what kind of palsy does he have? But it's just a word that we really don't know when you go to the original Greek text. We don't know exactly what kind of ailment, but it's something that left this poor man crippled where he couldn't walk. Now, if you do pin down some of the scholars over time, there are some that suggest that this was um, a disease that came from living a prodigal lifestyle uh, that you would get from sexually transmitted disease. It was uh, Philip Keller writes in his book, Rabboni, which is to say master, that's the name of his book. He wrote this about the story. 
Paralysis was an incurable condition in those times. It had a variety of causes. The most common was the result of sexually transmitted disease. And it's assumed this young man, stricken helpless, lying there immobilized on his thin mattress, was paying the high price of his prodigal life. Um, that's the one thing scholars tend to start to agree on, that that's probably the situation. Whether that was the case or not, the problem also was in those days, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, um, but the scribes particularly, they would teach that if you were crippled or sick or anything wrong with you, it's because you had sin in your life. You were a sinner and you deserve what you get. And the reason they taught that is because they were helpless against it. So they just kind of used that as an excuse. Oh, this guy must've done something really bad. And so um, if you're crippled in those days, well, you must've deserved it. And so you can understand that created a culture that very much lacked compassion. So this poor guy, sick of the palsy, crippled, lying in his bed without any help. Um, you know, it's interesting, by the way, when, when um, they taught that, that you know, if you were crippled or if you were sick, it was your own fault. Jesus actually taught against that. Um, uh, remember when Jesus and his disciples walked by the blind guy uh, there in John chapter nine, verses one through three, it says, Jesus passed by, saw a man which was blind from his birth. Um, so the, the teaching of the day, by the way, was, well, he, he must have sinned or maybe his mother sinned. Well, the big debate wasn't that there was no sin. The debate was, was it his parents' fault or was it his fault? Because he was blind from his birth. That was the big raging debate at the time. So the disciples, they walked by the blind guy who's blind from his birth, like, oh, we got Jesus, let's ask him, which one, A or B? Is it the parents' fault or is it his fault? That was the big question of the day. So they passed by and so verse two, the disciples asked Jesus saying, master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. The answer is God can do whatever he wants in a person's life. And he's got a reason and a purpose for all that. God's just doing something. Now, had they read their Old Testament Bible, the disciples and the Sadducees and the scribes, they would know this to be true, right? Remember the story of Job? As Job and his friends sat around, what did Job do? Job must've done something really bad to, to get the, all this stuff that's happened to poor Job. He's, he's a sinner. One of his friends made that argument uh, quite eloquently. But at the end of the book of Job, God just says, you're all wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. That's the end of the book of Job. And we, with hindsight, we know what was going on with Job. God and Satan were having this cosmic debate in heaven uh, about Job's faith. And it had nothing to do with Job's sin. It was just something that was going on. It's like what Jesus said, but that the works of God should be made manifest in Job. They should have known that, but the teaching of the day was wrong. Isn't that interesting? That these guys had a perspective that was off, but I like that the disciples asked Jesus, but they get the correct answer. Well, the man on the mat needed something really bad. What was it, Brett? What did he need? Did he need to get healed and walk again? Well, actually, no, that wasn't his greatest need. His greatest need was forgiveness of sin. I wonder about the four guys that carried the man in and they lowered him down. Went to all that work, you know, lowered him down and sat him on the ground. And then Jesus says, son, and they're waiting for it. Okay, here it comes, uh, take up your bed and walk. This is gonna be awesome. And then Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Well, uh, that's great, Jesus. Okay, that, 
wonderful, his sins are forgiven, whatever, but uh, he's here and he's crippled. We need him to get healed. I wonder. Um, but as it turns out, this man's greatest need was to be forgiven for his sins. And by the way, in this story, every single one of us can identify with the man on the mat because we're all sinners. We've all fallen short. We all have the same need. And which one was the greater need, to have his sins forgiven or to be able to take up his bed and walk? Well, if you think about it for a second, having your sins forgiven means eternal life in heaven to live in glory with Christ. To walk, you can walk for another, how old was this guy? We don't know, but half his life he's been crippled. Now he can live the rest of his life uncrippled, but only to go to hell would be a real bummer. So his greatest need was to be forgiven for his sins. That's an important thing. And I hope you understand that as well. We all have that need. An old sermon preacher I used to hear, he'd say, man's greatest need was God's greatest deed. When God became a man and died on the cross for the sins of the whole world, that their sins might be forgiven. And so for this man, his need was to be forgiven, to be saved, not just from his crippled condition, um, but from his sin. Um, that's the need of everybody. Jesus saw that as job one. Priority job was to forgive this man's sin. Now, you could be one of two people so far. You got the man on the stretcher who needed help, but then there were the stretcher bearers that were bringing this man to Christ. And that's the second perspective I'd like to look at. So you got number one, the man on the mat, but now you have the stretcher bearers. The four guys that carried their buddy to bring, them, bring him to Jesus and it makes me wonder how the church needs stretcher bearers these days. Um, is there a person in your life that the Lord would have you to go to great lengths, even to the pulling off of a roof somewhere to bring your friend, to bring the person the Lord puts in your heart right now that you're thinking about? Is there someone you should go to greater measures to get it done? I worry that we've become too passive. You know, the culture that we live in says, yeah, you can be a Christian if you want, but keep it to yourself. Don't be telling us about Jesus. And they tell you at work, you can't talk about the Bible, you can't pray, you can't do this in schools. We've shut all that down. Oh, we can talk about anything else. But if you try to talk about Jesus, and sadly, a lot of Christians have very mousily shrieked in the corner and said, oh, I'm not saying anything about Jesus. I'm gonna do, I'm gonna be an obedient citizen to keep my mouth shut and we've become very weak. We need more people that are willing to bear the burdens of others and tear some roofs off and to bring people to Christ. They were willing to break down the barriers. You know, uh, some of you come from churches that have had committees. Athe Creek has never had a committee. We don't have committees here. I'll tell you why. Because committees are groups of people that get together to figure out how you can't do something. <laughs> That's what a committee does. Um, but I love it when you get a, a group of these guys, these four stretcher barriers, bearers who, who say, man, we're gonna get, get busy and do what it takes, whatever it takes to bring our friend to Christ. They could have given up at any level. Isn't that interesting? You know, um, I think part of that started when maybe some of your grandma said, well, the good book says, man, God helps those who help themselves. Um, that's not the good book, by the way. That's the bad book. Uh, what, Brett? Well, the, the God helps those who help themselves. It's in the Koran. Hello? That's the bad book. Uh, you don't believe me? It's the Koran, chapter 13, verse 11. Um, that, that basically, in, in a variant of that same phrase, is found that Allah says, uh, God helps those who help themselves. Allah helps those who help themselves. But that's not the way of God. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is basically this. God helps those who are unable and can't help themselves. God loves the person and cares for the person who can't do anything. The man on the mat couldn't move. He had to have his buddies who cared enough to pick him up and not only bring him to the house, but to carry him and put him up on the roof and start tearing up the roof. Um, Adolf Menard was a Protestant preacher in the 19th century France, probably the most famous Protestant preacher at the time. Um, but he, he made a good quote when he said, between the great things that we cannot do and the small things we will not do, the danger is that we shall do nothing. Could that be the condition of a lot of the church of Jesus Christ today where well, people get upset if you talk about Jesus or people think I'm a weirdo or I might offend someone. God forbid you offend someone. And I think we should be cognizant of the fact that if we're so unwilling to offend, we're gonna be so courteous and polite only to see people march their way to the fires of hell. When all the Lord's asking us to be is a little bit bold. The wicked flee when no one's pursuing, the proverb says, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. We need boldness. Do you have a friend that you need to speak into their life and, and say a word? Well, Brad, I, they might offend, you know, and they might, they might think I'm against them or that I'm gonna wound them if I try to tell them that they're a sinner. Well, you gotta remember, you know, Proverbs does say in Proverbs 27, six, faithful are the wounds of the friend. Are you so afraid to talk to your friend that they might be offended? Um, and, and are you easily offended so that if your friend does speak a word into your life, you won't listen to them? And you say, you're not my friend anymore, cancel. That's the culture we live in. It's, it's sad, but a true friend should be there for their friend's spiritual well-being. I love these four friends that were willing to do whatever they had to do. Um, and the energy and the effort that it took, they, they didn't easily give up. You know, I, I think of our families today. Dad, are you doing what it takes to make sure your kids are brought before Jesus? Are you putting the right effort in? Do you put as much effort in working on your kid's free throw shot as you do with their understanding of God's word and their faithfulness to Christ? Or their soccer goal? Or, you know, it's amazing how sports, we get into that stuff so much and dad's like, yeah, I'm gonna coach, I'm gonna do all this stuff, but have you done family devos? Um, because that's what matters. Uh, sports are great. I'm all for sports, it's wonderful. Uh, I played a lot of sports myself when I was a kid, but, but you know what? Um, that's gonna be fleeting. There's gonna come a day where that's gonna matter, not at all, but their faith in Christ will matter for all eternity. Mom, are you teaching your daughter not just to try to be beautiful on the outside, but spiritually on the inside? Are you taking as much time to train and teach her and, and go to the distance, even if you have to tear the roof off? I think parents have, are, have become sort of weakened. We, we've been told, hey, uh, you know, don't say anything. If your kid wants to change their gender, it's kind of none of your business, mom and dad. Uh, let the school district handle that. Um, and, we've, and we've cowered as, as a culture, saying, ah, okay, I guess that's what we're supposed to do. Just let your kids sort of grow into whoever they're gonna be. Um, the Bible says they will grow into little massive sinners. That's what's gonna happen. That's the, that's the way the water flows in gra natural gravity of life. We all flow into just horrible sin. Mom and dad, you're the ones who are supposed to carry your kids to Christ and tear off the roof if need be. The bearers of stretchers is something we need more and more of. These four guys, by the way, I could go on and on about them. Don't you think if these four guys had enough faith to believe that Jesus was some big deal, do you ever wonder, did they wanna hear Jesus preach? 
I'll bet these four guys were interested. I wonder what Jesus is preaching. But I love that they, um, the, their priority was not them, themselves. Their priority was to say, we got a guy who's hurting and we need to bring him to Christ. Um, I, I worry that sometimes we live in a society that's so self-consumed with our own comfort and pleasure. And it's all about me and I hope I get what I want. And, and, and I hope when I go to church, I, I you know, get this and I hope I get a close parking spot and I hope I don't have to walk along and I hope it, don't, it doesn't rain. And I hope I get a nice chair and seat in the sanctuary or at least in the building. And um, um, I hope that, you know, and, and me, me, me. And it's all about my comfort. And oh, that's, that's a tough, unfortunate thing. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're just here, we don't expect anything of you to, to work or serve or anything like that or try to be helpful. But when you're a Christian, if you've accepted Christ, hopefully in time, especially if you're a long time Christian, it's not all about me, but you're more of a stretcher bearer. How can I help people come to Christ? How thankful I am for the more than 2000 volunteers at Athe Creek that make this church a place where people can come. Um, you know, parking lot people and coffee people and people watching kids and wiping snotty noses and helping change diapers and, you know, doing some heavy lifting. Like there's some hard work that, that people do and volunteer work, but they're here saying, it's not about me. It's how can we help and be a part of those that can come and hear the good word of Jesus Christ, be saved and forgiven for their sins. Um, how we need those stretcher bearers and how thankful I am for them. Another thing, we could go on and on about these guys question, whose faith sort of kicked off the whole thing? When we read this story, the, the guys with the faith that Jesus acknowledges there in verse five, it says, Jesus, seeing their faith, he saw their faith. Then he turned to the guy that was sick and said, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, when I was a younger uh, man, I, was, I struggled with this. Like he saw their faith, so he heals that guy. And, and he, that guy's saved. Because when your sins are forgiven by Jesus, wouldn't you agree that's salvation? When your sins are forgiven by Jesus, that's, that's good news, man. You're saved. That's what salvation is. But was it the boys that carried them in, their four guys, was it their faith that saved him? And I struggled with this one. But what I've come to realize as time has gone by, it was not their faith that saved him. It was the faith of these men that brought to the, brought this man to the place where he could hear the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Question, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the, the word of the Lord, the word of God. And, and, and Jesus, when he spoke, what was that? That was the word of God. By the way, that's gonna help you in this story if you realize that Jesus is God. There's some guys I'll show you in a second who didn't even know that. But Jesus speaks the word. If the word is God, if Jesus is speaking to you, you're hearing the word of God quite literally. And I believe when that happened, the guy on the mat had enough faith when he heard your sins are forgiven thee. You got the word of God speaking. I, I think that probably created the faith within him. But I love it that the faith of the four guys, they had enough faith to bring their buddy to Jesus and let Jesus do the rest. When Jesus saw their faith, then he turned and spoke his word into that man's life. Some of you might think, oh, I don't think that guy I work with will ever become a Christian. But could it be that you need to have faith and just do your best, whether it's you sharing the good news of Jesus with that person, or even inviting them to come and meet Jesus here at Athey Creek or at a church that preaches Jesus? Um, you need to understand that that takes faith. These guys had enough faith to bring their crippled friend who was in sin to come to salvation. 
Um, and, and then you are responsible for having faith to be saved. That, that does come from you. I think, you know, you can have a godly mother who teaches you about Jesus, but it's still, it has to be the faith that comes from your heart to believe and accept. If you had a godly father, that doesn't make you automatically a Christian. It still requires faith from you. But you can exert your faith that you might pull people to Christ. If you saw the Jesus Revolution movie, the band in that show, that movie uh, called Love Song, one of the first bands of the Jesus movement there. Um, I grew up listening to that. My mom and dad always had Christian praise music going on the vinyl uh, when I was growing up as a kid. But um, the, par- the song uh, by Love, Love Song, one of them was called Two Hands. And the, I remember as a kid hearing this, uh, and it was kind of a mental picture that stuck with me. They sang about how with one hand you reach out to Jesus but with the other hand, you bring a friend with you. And uh, I remember hearing that thing, and that's the way it works. That's what these four guys are doing. By them coming to Jesus, bringing their friend, they're saving him. But I have a hunch these guys walked away totally saved and followers of Jesus at that point as well. Um, what we need in the church today is burden bearers, stretcher bearers, men and women that are, have the kind of faith to bring people to Jesus so that they might hear the gospel. Um, I remember hearing a story of a guy who was out in the woods hunting, um, but there was an uh, uncharacteristic snowstorm that wasn't really normal that time of year. And he was caught really unprepared out there. um, And it snowed so fast and so hard, the blizzard, you could only see a few feet in front of your face. And it got him really disoriented. And he thought, man, I gotta get, get in before I die out here. And he, he just started walking and, and he lost his way. And pretty soon he didn't know where he was. And he just kept hiking and hiking. And finally he was so exhausted and dehydrated. He just kind of fell down in the snow face down. And he thought to himself, here's where I'm going to die. But the story goes that as he laid there, he felt something under his arm in the snow that was warm. And he reached down and brushed some snow off and he couldn't believe it, it was another man's arm. And it looked at that this guy had collapsed like him. And so he, with almost superhuman strength, with a shot of adrenaline, just kind of wow, he, he pulls this guy out of the snow and throws him up on his shoulders and starts trying to trudge through the snow again. And he makes it about five or six steps when suddenly he sees through the snow a faint little glow of a light from a cabin with a roaring fire. And in pulling this guy out of the snow, not only did he save him, but he also saved himself. There's something about that, that that picture that rings true with those who are stretcher bearers, bringing people to Christ. Well, this story, you got the man on the mat, you got the stretcher bearers. <coughs> Number three, we have the rest of the people in the house. There was a crowd that had gathered. Word had gotten out in town. Jesus is in the house. So um, what about these people? Well, we have to kind of think about them for a second. What was their reason for being there? Were they there just to see a magic trick? Were they there to hear Jesus teach the word? What would be their response? And we're gonna find out later on, the town of Capernaum had a kind of an overwhelming response to Jesus, but it wasn't a good response. Could it be that this is sort of a seemingly good response, but maybe it wasn't? When they saw, this, the people in the house, when they saw the guy healed, well, what, what does it say? It says there in verse 12, immediately he arose, took up the bed, went forth before them all. And here's the people in the house, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, 
saying, we never saw it on this fashion. That's the King James way of saying, we ain't never seen it like this before. Um, so what do they do? They do two things. They, they, uh, they, glor- they glorify God, um, but they also are amazed. Question, are you saved by, glor- by, um, by being amazed? You cannot be saved by being amazed. Are you saved by glorifying God? Ooh, this one's harder. Anybody? <clears throat> well, there's been people that have said the words, praise God, or to God be the glory, that I'm pretty sure are not saved. You're not saved by saying praise God or even giving glory to God, whoever he or she may be. I mean, that's Portland, that's where we live. We live in a culture that says, yeah, praise God, whoever he or she may be, whatever. If it's a doorknob, your higher power, your truth, the tree that you're hugging, like that's Portland, that's where we live. So just glorifying God, that's not even enough. And we're gonna see that about these Capernaumites. The people of Capernaum are an interesting bunch because they're gonna see more miracles that Jesus performs in any other town in all of Galilee. So what's gonna happen here? Why were the people there? They were to see something, but just to kind of see the show, it seems. They wanna see the miracle. They wanna hear this guy who speaks and teaches differently than everybody else. But the people in the house, it's almost like they see this guy healed, like, wow, we're amazed, good for him. He found his path, he got his healing. But I wanna encourage you, don't just be amazed at what God is doing because that's not what saves you. It's the forgiveness of sin that the man on the mat got. That's the same thing the crowd needs. The crowd needs that same forgiveness of sin. The people in the house needed to have their sins forgiven just as much as the guy on the mat. Um, And so that's an important thing. Don't just be a, a person who observes. Just because you're here at Athey Creek, that does not make you a Christian. That does not make you saved. You say, well, Brett, I've gone to church all my life. I don't have to just come to Athey. I've been to church all my life. Doesn't make you a Christian. You could just be an observer and think that, well, my mom and dad dragged me to church, so I must be saved. Nope. Well, I'm an American. That makes me a Christian. Nope. Um, What is a Christian? A person who is a sinner and they repent of their sin and realize I am a sinner and I need to be saved from my sins, forgiven. And the only way you can have your sins forgiven is through the work of Jesus who died on the cross for the sins of the world. You gotta be born again. Jesus said you were born in death. You must be born again. It's an event. Uh, It's an event. Romans 10, verse nine and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But you gotta be saved from what? Your sins that doom you and me, us to hell. But good news, the Lord loved you so much that he says, I will make for you a free gift the way, the truth, the life through me to get to heaven. That's why Jesus said, no man can come to the Father but by me. That's why there in the book of Acts, it says you know, that there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved than that of Jesus Christ. So the people in the house, they're amazed and they even say, to God be the glory, but I'll show you later, I don't think it sticks with them. I don't think they become saved believers. I'll show you why in a second. So you got number one, the man on the mat, the stretcher bearers, the people in the house. But let's, let's take thought for a moment for the owner of the house. We don't know for sure, but most people believe, and some of the theologians write that this must have been Peter's house. Because Peter did live in Capernaum. It would be logical that they would be meeting, Jesus would be meeting with, in Peter's house. We know that Jesus went and healed uh, G- Peter's mother-in-law. 
So uh, there was, Jesus was in that house. Um, but but um, whoever's house it was, don't you love it that somebody invited Jesus over to their house? Good move. Do you have a Jesus house or do you not have a Jesus house? That's what I would ask you. Where you live, is your house a Jesus house? My house was a, I grew up, and I didn't even know how wonderful this was until I got older. I grew up in a Jesus house. When I got home from school, my mom would have Jesus music playing on the record player. Um, on Wednesday nights, our church gathered in our house for Bible study. We had a Wednesday night Bible study. Later it became a giant church, but in the early days, the Bible study was held at my parents' house. I'd come home from football practice and people started driving in the driveway and, and it was like this story. There was, you couldn't even get in the door of our house. People were sitting in the kitchen on the floor, listening around the hallway to the, to the guy who was teaching the Wednesday night Bible study. And I just remember... Um, you know, feeling the temperature in our house go up because of body heat. And we'd all be in there sweating as a Bible study. But there was something awesome about having a Jesus house. Um, our house, when nobody was there, our family was doing family devos, talking about Jesus. Um, but I love that the owner of this house, um, do you think he was bummed? People tracking in, forgetting to take off their dirty sandals. Do you think they were bummed when somebody leaned up against that vase from... Tiberius, that shattered, oh, you broke my Tiberius vase. Because um, see, that's the stuff that happened. My mom had a meticulous house. She kept it clean and, and always decorated beautifully and very cozy and homey. But man, I'll tell you, when people came into our house, they destroyed it. You watch party people, they're watching right now. You're probably destroying people's houses as we speak. <laughs> I know, we had that kind of a house. Do you think, do you think that, that the owner of this house, if it's Peter or whoever it is, do you think they're in heaven today going, man, I wish I didn't get my carpet all damaged from that day when Jesus came and all those people crammed into my house? Do you think they were bummed that they let their house use, be used as a resource for the furthering of the kingdom? Um, I bet in heaven, they're, they're probably walking around. That was my house that had, you know, the guy that got raised through the roof, the, the roof that got torn off, that was my roof. <laughs> uh, do you think they're bummed that their roof got torn off now that they're in heaven in all eternity with God? See, sometimes I think we worry about the temporary and the, the st getting our lives disrupted with damage or putting ourselves at risk or our house or our resources at risk. But I love that this person was willing to say, no, I'm gonna have Jesus and, and all the people pile into my house. And uh, that house became a place where Christ could work and move and teach and heal. Man, I told you even a couple weeks ago how my dad would bring guys home from work to our house for dinner and he'd, they'd share the gospel at the dinner table. People were saved and brought to Christ in my house. And I, I, I realized when I got older, not everybody's got a Jesus house, but I would wish that upon everybody. You have a Jesus house, you're gonna have a blessed house. I guarantee it. Uh, Joshua kind of got this. The children of Israel were worshiping other gods and totally off the rails. But Joshua, who's now the leader of Israel, he says, if it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But I love this phrase, classic, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Those of us who, who uh, have places in our house where people can come and we're hospitable and we're able to bring people into Christ and use those things for his purpose. Um, 
you might think, well, there's a cost to that. It, it, it could wear stuff out. And, but if you look at the bigger picture, give me the Jesus house every time. Well, anyway, I, I think it's kind of cool as we consider that. The, the, the fifth perspective out of seven, um, let's look at, let's go from the nice people in the house to suddenly the religious leaders. Um, you can almost hear the music, dun, dun, dun. The religious leaders, because they were the worst ones in the story. Um, the religious leaders, they're actually the scribes. They were the ones who would normally teach and instruct. And there's some scribes there. Now, what's funny about the scribes in this story, if you read this account that we just read, did you notice they didn't say a word? They were they're completely silent. Um, well, no, Brett, they were saying that Jesus, who is this? Blasphemy. No, they thought this in their brains. That would be a little bit awkward if you're hanging around with Jesus and, you know, and you're thinking something and then he turns and looks at you and then he starts talking about what you're thinking. Ah! Like you'd be like, oh, okay, think about petunias, think about petunias, like think about something nice because he knows what I'm thinking. Ah! But that's what's happening here. These guys think to themselves two questions uh, and they're wrong on the first question, but they're actually right on the second question. They're thinking to themselves, the first question as they raise it there, it says in verse seven, why doth this man speak blasphemies? That's the wrong one. He wasn't speaking blasphemies. But they were right in their second question when they said, who can forgive sins but God only? And that's the part they missed. They're right, only God can forgive sins. It just so happens that God is standing in front of them here in this house and they don't get it. Of all the people in the room that should have got it, don't you think it was the scribes? Those that were knowledgeable of the scriptures, those that knew religion, they, they were the ones that should have got it. And you know what's so amazing? Sometimes religion is the biggest blocker of truth of all. The religionists, the religious leaders throughout the ages, from the ancient times to very modern day, there's so many religionists that say stuff and believe stuff that not only is hurtful to the church, but gets you turned totally in the wrong direction. These guys were completely off. Here's God in the flesh, Jesus, who has the power to forgive sins, and he speaks this into a guy's life, and they're like, blasphemy. Only God has the, has the power to forgive sins. They're totally clueless. And can I just give you a word of warning in the days that we're living, I think there's a lot of guys that come off very religious like they, they know something, but they really don't. And it can derail your faith. Watch out for tradition. Oh, I know there's some good tradition and we, I love, I like studying church history. I've made a, 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 most of my life, I've spent one foot in studying church history. I love to learn from that. There's great things to learn, but one of the things you learn is be careful what we pull from church history. Because I can't defend most of church history. Most of the stuff that happened in the church in ancient times, we have to say, yeah, they were wrong, they were wrong, they were wrong. And they got it wrong so many times that people were derailed in their faith. And I would just say, be careful, Christian, for tradition. I can't defend tradition. I can defend, guess what? I, I can defend tooth and nail the Bible. Everything in this word is infallible and perfect. It's the inerrant word of God and we can trust it. And, and yet some people still refuse to say this is the standard and they stick with their traditions. I have been told by people, maybe some of your relatives, that I'm not really even saved because I wear shorts when I teach the Bible. <laughs> now I'm so thankful, thank you guys for letting me wear shorts. <laughs> I wore pants the other day and it was horrific. 
Some of us were not built for that. Um, but does that make me not a Christian? Oh, well, Brad, maybe not a, it, it makes you irreverent toward the Lord. Where'd you get that harebrained idea? Because it's nowhere in the Bible. Um, the Bible actually teaches the opposite. Just like your grandma telling God helps those who help themselves. Just as stupid as that is saying that somebody has to wear certain clothing to church. Um, but actually God says man is the one that looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart and knows the intentions of the heart. The Lord's not looking for people that are dressed to the nines necessarily. Now, if you dress fancy for church and you love that, that's great. If that's something you want to do, wonderful. I commend that. We do need a little more class here at Athey Creek. You're helping us with that. That's great. I'm not against that. But as soon as you make that something that a church person is supposed to do, you've just made something up that's nowhere to be found in the Bible. And I could go on and on. Traditions, baptizing babies. Oh, it's a tradition of man. Um, it's nowhere in the Bible. You never see a baby. What you see is the, the phrase that all the time over and over again, repent and be baptized. Does a six-month-old or a three-month-old baby know how to repent from their sins? No. But when you get to an age when you realize, you know what, I'm a sinner and I need to repent of my sins, then they're ready for baptism. It's a decision a person's supposed to make. Somewhere in church history, they started saying, oh, well, let's just take care of it early. A well-meaning mom and dad, well, we're gonna baptize our child because that's what the church told us to do. And the church says, well, sprinkle some water and bada being good to go, baby's good to go. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Um, I'm just telling you, you say, Brett, well, who are you to say that? It's not me, it's the Bible. Don't listen to me at all. Go to the scripture and show me where the Bible says, I can just go on and on. So many religious leaders have made the same mistake of these scribes in the house that day, where they're not only so wrong, but they're so wrong, they're gonna miss the true gospel message of Jesus Christ. And that happens all the time, even today. The sixth perspective is the main character, the centerpiece of the whole story, and none other than Jesus Christ. And I have to just take time and just bask in who is this man standing in this house. Uh, well, we learn already he's the one who has the power, and he's the only one who has the power to forgive sins. Of all the things Jesus stands for and does, you and I should feel relief and blessing to know that Jesus is the one who can speak that out and say, your sins are forgiven. But but how does he get that power to speak? He got the power to speak that um, because as it turns out, Jesus did something that gave that power. See, the, the scribe said, who does this guy think he is? Thinking that he has the power to forgive sins. But as it turns out, Jesus is the only one who has that power and it's because he did something. He did something powerful. In his uh, short story, the the capital of the world, Ernest Hemingway wrote an interesting little bit and tells the story of a Spanish father and his teenage son. His teenage son's name was Paco there in Spain, Madrid, Spain. And Paco, a very common name of that you know, nation, but Paco and his, his father got into a raging argument and became very much angry with one another. And eventually their, their relationship was shattered and the rebellious son ran away from home. But for several months, the father was heartbroken. And he looked high and low all over Madrid and eventually even beyond, looking for his son Paco to no avail and couldn't find him. So he did something that was different, shocking. He went down to the Madrid newspaper and 
you know, took out a whole full page ad in, this, in the Madrid paper that said this, Dear Paco, please meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. Love, Father. And as Hemingway tells the story, the next day at noon in front of the newspaper office, there were 800 Pacos, <laughs> all seeking forgiveness from their father. Are you like one of those Pacos who knows you've got sin and, and the Father in heaven, surely he's mad at me, surely he's disappointed or hates me because I've failed or I'm flawed. Well, the Lord took out a, not only a full page ad, but a whole book to say, all is forgiven, come back, come to me. And I'll take your burden of sin and I'll take it off your shoulders and I'll bear your burden on the cross. And anyone who wants to be saved can, can be saved should they confess their faith in Christ. Rise up and walk. And that's what happened. What a great story. The story of Jesus uh, there in the house. I love this part of Jesus. That not only does he have the power um, to forgive, but he has the power to heal. By the way, those scribes, um, do you remember when this, what the scribes were thinking actually? They were thinking, you know, this guy, um, you know, he thinks he's God, so he's power to forgive sin. But Jesus I love the logic Jesus used with these scribes. And he raises this rhetorical question. Remember what he says? He says, which one's easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say, take up your bed and walk. Now, what do you think the scribes thought the answer to that was? Well, I'm pretty sure they thought it would be, oh, it's empty words to say your sins are forgiven because there's no proof of that. You can, I could say that to anybody. Your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Uh, which one's easier to do that? Or for me to say, take up your bed and walk because well, there's skin in the game on that one to say, take up your bed. We gotta see a guy who's been laying around Capernaum for years. Everybody knows he's the cripple in town. And to say, take up your bed and walk, well, that's a big deal. So I'm sure the scribes, when Jesus rhetorically asked the question, they were all thinking, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. That's why you said it. But then Jesus said, but that you may know that I am the one who has power to say your sins are forgiven. He turned to the guy who was crippled and said, take up your bed and walk. And then he took up his bed and walked. There's so much we see in that, but one of the things we see is when Jesus asked that question, we now know the answer to his rhetorical question. Which one's easier? Well, it's easier, in fact, to say, take up your bed and walk. Jesus could just speak to that guy and say, be healed, and he was healed. But for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, Jesus would have to shed his own blood to be able to have the power to say that to that guy. That's why Jesus alone has the power to forgive sins because he went to the cross dying on the cross for the sins of the world. So we now know the answer. It's actually a much harder to say with authority, like Jesus did, your sins are forgiven, because he'd have to die on the cross for that to be able to say that. To say you're, you're healed, well, that's what the Lord does. He heals a lot of people, and, and that's a beautiful part of what God does. But I love Jesus for that, that he has the power to forgive sin. Well, there's a seventh perspective before we go to our final uh, assignment for the day. And I'll, I'll kind of do a quick uh, end tack onto this. What about the rest of the people that were in Capernaum? Because obviously the whole town couldn't fit into one house. Where were the rest of the Capernaumites? Had they heard word that Jesus was in town and they were maybe indifferent? Maybe they were just walking around. Yeah, whatever, a bunch of religious people going there. Whatever, I've got fish to catch, millstones to make. Um, and they ended up not there for some reason. And here's where we start to look at the whole town of Capernaum because we have a snapshot in the Bible that tells us a sad story about Capernaum. There were three towns, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. 
that were all places where Jesus moved and did miracles. Jesus did more miracles in Capernaum than any of them, but they were all towns where Jesus ministered and loved on people, but they all rejected Jesus ultimately. None of the towns would say, oh, we're gonna be followers of Jesus. So the rest of Capernaum and probably many of the people in the house, while they were amazed, they weren't really saved. That's why in Matthew chapter 11, we have this thing, you know, where Jesus says some stuff that's radical. Matthew eleven twenty three. 23, he says, and you Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. By the way, people always say, Brett, you need to stop being so brutal. Jesus, talk about like, talk like Jesus. He always said nice things and he's always kind and compassionate. Um, read your Bibles. Jesus just said to Capernaum, you're not going to heaven, you're going to hell. That's what Jesus just said, read it. You're going down to hell. And it says, for if the mighty works had been done in Sodom, if these would have done had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. In other words, if, if I had healed people like I've done here in Sodom, they would have all repented of their sins and this town would still be there to this day. But I tell you that it'll be more tolerable, tolerable on the day of the judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Are those some pretty fiery words? And you know what's interesting? If you look at the previous verses of chapter 11, verse 21 and what have you, he says, woe unto you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. And he cursed them as well. So Jesus cursed Chorazin, Bethsaida and, and Capernaum. And guess what? If you go to Israel to this day, which we do, you'll find these towns are no longer in existence. They're just archeological ruin. I've got pictures of Capernaum. We've been there a bunch of times. Um, the only thing that's in Capernaum today is a bunch of tourists and the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> Brett, you're making that up. No, check it out, I'll show you. Um, this is some video we shot in Capernaum. It's an archeological ruin and we tourists like to go see Capernaum as it sits in ruin. It's the most beautiful part on the Sea of Galilee. If I was gonna build a resort, I'd build, there's the Millennium Falcon and then there's this, the town. And that's the synagogue, the ruins of the synagogue where Jesus preached right from where our group is there. Uh, we're sitting there right where Jesus would preach and heal the man with the withered hand. But Capernaum now, it just sits there in ruin and, and tourists come to, to be amazed at the ruin of the most beautiful part of the seashore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, what's the Millennium Falcon doing there? Well, the Catholics build a, built a, a thing over Peter's house. Uh, that's where they know Peter's house was. So you have to kind of bend over and look under the Millennium Falcon to see Peter's house. It's unfortunate. Um, but, uh, but actually, uh, it's still in ruin. The only thing that's there is a, a, sort of that, that Millennium Falcon. But other than that, Jesus' words came totally to pass. It's just sitting there and people come to see the ruins of the town. Um, you don't wanna find yourself in the place of Capernaum. You know, if you live here in America, um, we actually see the beauty of what God has done. And we've even seen his grace shed upon our nation. And there's a lot of gawkers. They'll say, wow, look what the Lord's done. But, but I worry that we're gonna be in ruin because the Lord's done so much for us. But if we reject him and if we don't accept him, we're gonna be as guilty as the men and the women of Capernaum. So seven perspectives uh, to look at. But as we talked about at the beginning, I'm gonna wrap it up with a quick um, scan because this story shows us a beautiful model for the church. And I believe any healthy church will have the same components uh, of what happened with this man who was crippled and his four buddies and in this house. 
Because of, of all the things that happened in Capernaum, this is one of the good things that happened. And it really makes for a good model of the church. The first part of the model, uh, we're gonna list them quickly here. So um, the first thing, notice it was Jesus-centered. This story in Mark chapter two, verses one through 12, Jesus was the center. In any good church, Jesus is the center. It's not a, centered on a pastor or a movement. It should not be centered on a leadership team or a building. Um, Jesus needs to be the center of any good, healthy church. Um, also, the word got out. Uh, verse one of, of chapter two, it says that there was noise throughout the town that, that Jesus was in town. Um, boy, I hope word gets out. Uh, I hope you as Athey Creekers are giving, getting out the word um, that Jesus is alive and well, that you're preaching Jesus, telling people about Jesus. I'm inviting people. I, I, I um, struggle with um, this idea because some of you say, well, Brett, there's no more room to bring people to church at Athey Creek. Um, and we're trying to work on that as slowly but surely. But, um, but at the same time, um, that kind of brings us to kind of another problem, but it's interesting. Number three, a good model is the, the, the house. It was packed. You couldn't even get in the doors. I think that is a sign of a healthy church. Now I have to be careful here because I don't want to sound arrogant or prideful because that's not my heart at all. It's, it's quite the opposite. I have to admit our leadership team, we feel hurt and broken by the condition of the church, not just in America, but specifically for the Portland area. Um, there are churches that were once thriving and doing well and they're, they're shrinking and failing. And I'm concerned because they're trying to diagnose the whole nation. Um, I listen to you know podcasts, leadership podcasts, and pastors talking about why is the church shrinking, and and you know what? I I'm, I'm saddened. I believe they're misdiagnosing what the problem really is. Why are our churches closing their doors, and why are people leaving our churches? And they're blaming well the coronavirus, and people are afraid to gather again. Uh, they're saying, well, it's because of, you know, people are just too hardened by politics and, and uh, um, you know, it's idolatry of politics and this and that. And there's people that are saying this and that about why the church is having to close its doors and can't pay their bills and stuff like that. But I believe a healthy church will be a growing church um, because Jesus is attractive. And the word of God, people are starving for the word of God. In the past three years, churches have made some real decisions about what they were gonna teach and preach and were they gonna be derailed by worldly solutions, social justice, white fragility? Were they gonna be derailed by wokeism and stuff like that? See, they're misdiagnosing. What's happened is people have a sense of what's true and what's false. And there are a lot of people that are, in fact, like the Bereans who heard the scripture and searched the scripture to see if what that guy was saying is true or false. And people are discerning that there's a lot of falsities out there. People are tired of hearing misinformation, disinformation, especially from the pulpit. We have no excuse. We that are in the pulpit, and I have a figurative pulpit here. I'll pound it here for a second. Um, we have the responsibility not to give our opinions, but we have the responsibility to preach the word, to teach the Bible and have solid doctrine. And if I could, I know we have pastors who watch online. So if I could just speak into their lives and say, man, preach the word, shake off opinions of the world and get back to the solid truth of the Bible. And you'll find your church will grow again. People, people are smarter than we give them credit for. And when we start teaching things that are worldly, um, they're gonna bail and it's heartbreaking. 
So the leadership here at Aether Creek, we're praying that the Lord will revive the churches in the Portland area. Um, you know, Portland's become the joke of our nation and it's heartbreaking. Um, and I don't believe that we're gonna see it turned around by electing a different mayor. I think we're gonna see it turned around if people come to Jesus Christ and accept him as their personal savior. That's when we'll start to see major difference. The church has work to do in Portland. Well, a healthy church is gonna be a growing church. I believe that. I've seen that for years. I've been a Christian and a pastor for a long time. It's always the same. By the way, I'm doing the exact same thing I was doing 30 years ago. I've not changed at all. Like, I'm, and people act like Athey Creek's doing something, you know, to uh, shake things up or whatever. And we're really not. We're just doing the same thing we've always done. But if you think about it, all the churches that are struggling right now, they're the ones who changed. They moved with the culture. And then they're wondering and having podcasts of why people aren't coming back. I think it's not that difficult. Well, um, notice the number four quality, and we're almost done. Um, the word was preached. I love that. Verse two, Jesus, he preached the word unto them. Uh, every healthy church will do that. Not preaching opinions or nice sermon series on stuff we make up, but it's actually the word of God and making the word the centerpiece. That's why we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, because anything that's fill, filler is of no value. It's all about the word of God. Um, of all the things that I've said today, the most important is when I read these 12 verses. That's the most important and anointed part of today when I read the Bible. And churches need to get back to preaching the word. A healthy church is a preaching the word church. Um, number five, quickly, evangelism was happening. People were bringing their hurt and lost friend to Jesus. That's the sign of a healthy church. Uh, faith was expressed. The four stretcher bearers were expressing a venture of faith, an expression of faith. And when Jesus saw their faith, he did mighty works. A faithless church is a weak church but a healthy church is gonna have people, men and women of faith. I love that, faith was expressed. And then another key component is that every healthy church will have what Jesus declared, the forgiveness of sin. Um, if you don't have the forgiveness of sin and you're only talking about how to be a better person, then you're off track. The, the number one message, the wonder, remember, man's greatest need is to have their sins forgiven. That's gotta be a major component of a healthy church. And then also healing took place. And boy, I hope you have not failed to remember that God is the healer. He's Jehovah Rapha is one of his names, the God that heals our bodies. He's a great physician. He healed the guy of his crippledness, but he also healed the guy of his spiritual depravity, uh, whether it's emotional, physical, psychological, um, spiritual, whatever level of healing, that's what Jesus does. He's in the business of healing ruined lives. And that's one of the things you gotta see in the church. I love hearing the stories of how people, their lives are being put back together as they follow Christ. And then finally, lastly, uh, number nine, all these things, after all these things, you see glory given to God. That's another thing that we need to do. But not just saying, wow, that's impressive. Look how many people are in Athey Creek. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about saying, wow, look at the lives being changed and even my own life. I was once lost, but now I'm found. And, and what do we do? Go, wow. Thanks, Athe Creek. No, we say praise be to God. Um, glory has to be given to God, not a celebrity pastor. Well, Brett, you're a celebrity pastor. I've been told that. Somebody, I heard this. Somebody told somebody that I was writing a book. Um, and then I heard the person said when they heard that, which I'm not writing a book, um, but when they told, somebody told somebody I, I was writing a book and they said, that's it, I'm out of Athe Creek. Brett's a celebrity pastor, he's writing a book. 
And I was a little puzzled by that. I was like, so when did writing a book make somebody a celebrity pastor? I am not friends with Justin Bieber. <laughs> My shoes did not cost $3,000. Uh, maybe you've seen, what is it, Preachers and Sneakers? There's a whole thing on that where these preachers are wearing these $3,000 sneakers. Um, celebrity pastor is, is a thing that, that makes us all wanna barf. Um, just, just so you know, here at Athey Creek. Um, but I, I don't know what to do differently, really, other than I've just been sitting on the stool for 30 years doing the same thing. Um, people are gonna do what they're gonna do, uh, but um, people that know me, I'm just as big of a knucklehead as I was 30 years ago. Um, the only difference is I'm just still sitting here teaching the word. Um, so yeah, I hope that, and, and I've mentioned this before, but things like when you say, what church did you go to? Well, I go over to Brett Metter's church. Don't say that. Uh, that makes uh, Athey Creekers, uh, you know, those of us that are here, makes our skin crawl. Say, no, we go to Athey Creek, one of the great churches among all the great churches of Jesus Christ, capital C. And we're, we're you know, our motto here is we're better than nothing. So, um, so <laughs> you can take that however you want. <laughs> but, uh, but, but Jesus is our focus, Jesus-centered. Glory given to God. That's our goal here at Athey Creek. Amen? Amen? Amen. Lord, how thankful we are for this story. Oh, there's so much we can glean. I feel like we only scratched the surface here. Um, but Lord, so many lessons. I pray that you'd appropriate these to each person here, watching online, here in the building. Lord, that we would let this story sink into our hearts and glean the right things from it. We do take a moment to pray for the churches in Portland that Lord, that there would just be a love for your word and, and a commitment to, to solid doctrine. And that Lord, there would just be a, a getting back to the old paths. Uh, we know that so much of that is new out there is not true, but that which is true is not new. So I pray that there'd be a rewind back to the, the good things. Um, Lord, I pray that, that you'd revive your church in Portland. And for those that are closing their doors, Lord, I pray that you'd do what you do. Show them the direction they're supposed to go. And that then, then as they submit to you, Lord, that then there would be a, a revival. That's what we pray for. But until then, Lord, may we personally walk with you, love you, give glory to you with everything we have. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.